Now, it may be possible that for some of us visiting here, this is the first time you've ever read this story. But I suspect for most of us, we've read it more times than we can count. And therefore, it's important that we ask God's help that we might see fresh insights into what it meant for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to die for us. So, as we do that, let's just pray together first of all, shall we? Lord, as we, as it were, gather around the cross of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, we ask you'll give us a fresh appreciation of what it cost him to die in our place, a fresh understanding of our own sinfulness that made it necessary, a fresh joy and thankfulness for all that his death means for us. And for those of us here for whom this is just a story, we pray that you might speak by your Spirit and that we might be converted and turned and come in worship even around this Lord's table, worship of our Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was May the 10th, 1996. And Rob Hall, a 36-year-old New Zealander, was on top of the world and in deep trouble. He was literally on top of the world, 29,028 feet on the summit of Mount Everest. But he was in deep trouble because the weather had closed in with a sudden storm, hurricane gales, temperatures as low as 100 degrees minus, and with it the darkness. However, despite this, there was a good chance that Rob Hall would get down from the top of Mount Everest, for he is one of the finest mountaineers in the world, and he'd already been there on three previous occasions. But he had a problem. He was not alone. With him was 32-year-old Doug Hansen a postal worker, an amateur climber from Seattle in America, who had paid Hall's company, Adventure Consultants, $65,000 to get him to the summit of Everest. Rob Hall had succeeded in hauling him up to the summit, but on reaching it, Hansen collapsed into unconsciousness. And Hall's colleagues down at base camp monitoring the situation, radioed through to him and urged Hall to leave the dying man and to descend the mountain to safety. But Hall refused to leave his client. And by the time Hansen died, several hours later, Hall himself was no longer capable of descending the mountain. His camp patched through on the satellite radio a message to Hall's wife, seven months pregnant with their first child, in Christchurch in New Zealand. She herself had climbed Everest with Hall in 1990 and was also a respected physician. So she was under no illusion about the gravity of her husband's predicament. But Hall's final words to his wife were reassuring. I love you. Sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. Twelve days later when the storm had receded, the body of Hall was discovered just below the summit and near to him was the body of Doug Hansen, the postal worker. You can read the full story in the best-selling book, Into Thin Air, by John Krakauer, 
who was present and witnessed the events of that dreadful day when not just Hall and Hansen, but a total of 11 men and women lost their lives on Mount Everest. And controversy has raged ever since. Some of you are climbers and will know the story well. And the controversy, well, the controversy is about what exactly happened, whether it could have been avoided, and most crucially, whether Hall should have abandoned the dying man and at least saved his own life. 2,000 years ago, similar concerns and questions were raised about the death of another man, a man named Jesus, who died outside the city of Jerusalem. Not on a mountain, though Jerusalem was situated on Mount Zion, but if tradition is correct, on a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, outside the city. The idea that he could have saved himself, let alone anyone else, seemed totally ridiculous to those who watched him die, for he did not die by accident, but by deliberate execution and by the most barbarous means ever invented by human beings. The Roman Empire, the superpower of the day, devised crucifixion as a means of killing as slowly and painfully as possible slaves and common criminals. uh, Crucifixion was not only excruciating, the word excruciating means out of the cross, but humiliating. The Romans, with their sense of theatre, used the whole event as an object lesson and a warning to the rest of the population in their occupied territories. The condemned man was walked along, marched along, in a squadron of four soldiers in a kind of box. One to either side, one behind, and one in front who held a placard listing in large letters the crime for which this person was about to be executed. And the victim was required to carry his own cross, not the upright which was fixed in the ground, but the cross beam weighing around 40 pounds to which he would very shortly be nailed. And the route taken was as long as possible, winding its way through the streets of the city so that as many people as possible would witness what was happening. And finally, on arrival, he was nailed through his wrist to the crossbeam, which was then hoisted high and erected on the upright. A stake was driven through the crossed ankles and underneath the ankles was placed a small support, which enabled the victim to rest his feet. Otherwise, he would literally have been ripped from the cross by the weight of his body through his, ankle, through his wrist. Victims were known to live as long as a week before they finally expired from exhaustion and heart failure. So the idea that this Jesus, nailed to a cross, could possibly save himself, let alone anyone else, seemed absolutely ridiculous. Now there are four graphic accounts of this story in the four Gospels that bear the name of their authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Over this past year we've made our way through Mark's account under the title Following Jesus and today we follow Jesus to the cross Mark doesn't tell us any details about the crucifixion they would be only too well known and horrendous to his readers he simply writes and they crucified him and each of the four gospel writers has a different emphasis when they relate the story of the cross. And Mark's particular emphasis 
is that Jesus, in this his hour of greatest need, is totally and utterly forsaken. And this is highlighted by the one saying of Jesus from the cross which Mark records. If you look at all four Gospels together, you will discover that Jesus said seven different things from the cross. Mark only records one. A loud cry from Jesus spoken at the ninth hour, that is three o'clock in the afternoon, which significantly was the Jewish hour of prayer in the temple. And Mark gives the words in the native tongue of Jesus, Aramaic, and he provides the readers with a translation. Verse 34, At the ninth hour Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those standing near to the cross misunderstood what he was saying. Especially the first two words, Eloi, Eloi, or in Hebrew, Eli, Eli. And they thought it was short for Elijah. The great prophet of Israel, who was popularly regarded by the Jews as the patron saint of lost causes. And that Jesus was calling out for Elijah to come and rescue him. But that is not what Jesus meant by these words. He has been abandoned by men, but now he experiences something far, far worse. He is abandoned by God. For the first and only time in the Gospel records, Jesus does not address God by the intimate name, Abba, my Father. He simply says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we will never plumb the depths of those words and thankfully we'll never understand the agony of what it cost him fully. William Barclay comments, There is a mystery behind that cry which we cannot penetrate. Maybe it was like this. Jesus had taken this life of ours upon him. He had done our work, faced our temptations, borne our trials. He had suffered all that life could bring. He had known the failure of friends, the hatred of foes, the malice of enemies. He had known the most searing pain that life could offer. But up to this moment, Jesus had gone through every experience of life except one. He had never known the consequences of sin. Now, if there is one thing that sin does, it separates us from God. It puts between us and God a barrier like an unscalable wall. This was the one human experience through which Jesus had never passed because he was without sin. And it may be at that moment that experience came upon him. Not because he had sinned, but because in order to be identified completely with our humanity, he had to go through it. In this terrible, grim, bleak moment, Jesus really and truly identified himself with human sin. And here we have the divine paradox. Jesus knew what it was to be a sinner. And this experience must have been doubly agonizing for Jesus because he had never known what it was to be separated from God by this barrier. Now that is just a little of what the cross and cry of Jesus meant. What is crucial for the cross is a crux, a crossroads. What is cru crucial is how we respond to what Jesus did on that day. When he died on the cross, that day we call, amazingly, Good Friday. 
And I simply want to say as we come around the Lord's table, I want you to look with me in this passage and see there are two contrasting responses to the death of Jesus. Two contrasting responses to the death of Jesus. Here's the first one. The rejection of the King of the Jews. As Jesus had predicted, Mark 8 verse 31, He, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the eldest chief priests and teachers of the law and he must be killed. Jesus is rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. Long ago, right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, these religious leaders had closed their minds to any possibility that Jesus might be the long-expected Messiah. And the placard that Pilate placed above his head on the cross describing as the king of the Jews was to them offensive and ridiculous as they sarcastically say as they walk past and derisively dismiss him as this Christ, this king of Israel. To them a crucified Messiah is a contradiction in terms. Yet if they would only have opened their minds they could have come to the right conclusion. They've rejected Jesus. they failed to believe and I want to suggest to you strongly, they failed to believe despite the evidence. If you look at this passage, there are two kinds of evidence that should have given them the right clues. The first is the fulfilment of the Scriptures. Almost everything, down to the last detail that happened on that day, was predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures that these religious leaders knew only too well. For example, and I don't have time to go into every detail, I'll just give you a few examples. At the outset, Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a narcotic to dull the pain, verse 30, 23, and later he's offered wine vinegar, a fulfilment of Psalm 69, verse 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Most strikingly, the events of the crucifixion are written and predicted in one of the Psalms, in Psalm 22. We don't have time to look at the details, but when you get home, I encourage you to read Psalm 22 and see the cross of Jesus in the background. For example, we see the victim's experience. This is Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before. And he says, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Psalm 22:14-15. Even more striking are specific details. The dividing of the garments by the soldiers in verse 24. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Added to that, he is crucified between two criminals which has echoes of Isaiah 53:12, and if you have an NIV you'll see verse 28 is missing it's in a footnote because most of the older Greek manuscripts don't have it but certainly from an early age Christians saw clearly the prediction of Isaiah 53 verse 12 and the scripture was fulfilled which says he was counted with the lawless ones the ridicule of the onlookers is also predicted Psalm 22, 7-8 All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now these are all kind of implicit clues. And when Jesus cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The clues are made absolutely explicit, for that is the first verse of Psalm 22, verse 1. He is quoting from the psalm. He is saying to those who pass by, Can you not see that the scriptures must be fulfilled? Yet despite this evidence, the religious leaders will not believe. 
And not only was the evidence of the scriptures, but graphic signs were given which should also have given them the clue to what was happening, or at least made them stop and think, what are we doing here? There are two signs of God's judgment in this passage. First of all, there is the darkness, the unnatural darkness that comes over the land for three hours, from noon till three in the afternoon. Now, even a superficial knowledge of the Bible will tell you that darkness is always a sign of God's judgment. Jesus spoke, one of the images Jesus used to describe hell, he said it's a place of outer darkness. But most striking of all, if you're a Jew and knew the Old Testament, you knew the story. Egypt, the ten plagues, the ninth plague, darkness over the whole land. What follows is the final decisive judgment, the death of the firstborn son in every family. And the second sign which Mark describes must surely have made even the most obdurate person think again. The tearing of the curtain of the temple from top to bottom. Now if you imagine, I was trying to try and describe this and there aren't many really good diagrams because people aren't really sure, but imagine, and it's not big enough, but imagine that this church, just forget the balcony a moment, not the people there, but the dancers, imagine that this is the temple, alright? Herod's temple. And where you are sitting is the area where the priests are allowed to enter, it's called the holy place. Outside is the Gentiles, down in, in literally a porch outside where, where, where the vestibule is, and then the people are outside in the city beyond that in Rose Street. All right, this is not a perfect illustration. All right, okay. As the priests come in here, there are not doors. There's a curtain. All right. Now imagine coming up to the pulpit here is another curtain, 60 feet high. I don't know how high this is, but it's probably right up to the ceiling thick curtain and behind it here is the most holy place the holy of holies it's a dangerous place warning do not enter God is holy and through that curtain here only once a year with blood of animals in his hands as a sacrifice of the sin of the people to allow him to safely enter the high priest enters through this curtain and it is probably that curtain that is referred to here. When Jesus died on the cross, that temple was torn from top to bottom. He does the very thing that the scoffers had mocked him for. So, you who are going to destroy the temple. When he died on the cross, the temple and all its ritual was destroyed. Finished. God's judgment on this nation. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. Or it will take 40 years before the Romans finally demolish the whole thing. But in reality it's finished. And surely, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, must have questioned what happened on that moment when Jesus died. Yet there is no evidence that caused them to think again. The evidence they demand is, notice verse 32, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And as we'll see in a moment, this was the only thing that Jesus cannot and will not provide as evidence. For otherwise his mission will have failed. 
and so they reject Jesus as the king of the Jews now I pause for a moment before we turn to the second response and ask you what about you? have you rejected Jesus? and if so can I ask you on what grounds on what evidence even the evidence of everything that Jesus did I've only mentioned half a dozen things there are numerous things that happened to Jesus from his birth to his death that were fulfilled in minute detail over hundreds of years of prophecy in the Hebrew scriptures my my experience is that most people reject Jesus not because of the evidence but in spite of the evidence and the problem is that we reject Jesus because we don't want him to be the king of our lives we want to run our lives our way we don't want King Jesus to rule over us and so like the Jewish religious leaders we reject him and I simply ask you this morning is Jesus your king but this is not the full picture of what happened for contrast this the rejection of the king of Israel with the recognition of the son of God just go back with me a moment to the two signs of judgment that we talked about because I want to say that they are signs of judgment but they are also for those who believe signs of blessing of God's blessing for those who believe in Jesus notice what happened after the darkness what happened after the ninth plague well the tenth plague judgment the angel of death moved throughout Egypt destroying the firstborn son in every family but judgment is averted by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb the Passover lamb is sacrificed and judgment is averted now this is not just preacher's wishful thinking reading things into the text because when Jesus dies what time of year is it? it's Passover the families in Israel are about to sacrifice the Passover lamb that's why they want to kill Jesus and get it over with quickly so they can get along with their Passover but Jesus is the Passover lamb he's crucified between two sinners he spent his life in the company of sinners he dies between two sinners he dies for sin he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and notice the other side after the curtain is torn what happens well access to God's presence is open now to all people it's no longer restricted to Jews a high priest once a year because through the blood of Jesus we can enter into God's presence and it doesn't matter this morning whether you have the privilege and it is a privilege of being born a Jew or whether you're a Gentile you see the scoffers didn't realize it they laughed and said so now you who are going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days what a joke no he did it the temple of his body was destroyed as he said and now through Jesus through his body we can enter into God's presence we don't have time to look at all the details but read the book of Hebrews if you want more details in the New Testament here just some verses from the book of Hebrews written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to the old time religion you know the temple and the worship and the sacrifice and the animals and everything this is what he says therefore brothers since we have confidence notice the words and again I don't have time to look at the detail but notice the words since we have confidence to enter the most holy place behind the curtain by the blood of Jesus 
by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. What curtain? That is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, you don't need any more high priests. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our bodies hot sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I don't have time to deal with the detail and the ritual that goes back to the Old Testament. But you get the picture. The temple is torn from top to bottom. The kingdom of heaven is open to all believers through a new and living way, a better way. Why go back to the old way? It's finished. Right to the book of Hebrews, is a decisive Greek word. Etherpax, finished. Once for all. And the key event in human history is the death of Jesus on Good Friday. Now the lowest and most awful point in all that Jesus suffered on the cross was when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that was the end point of his suffering. For as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, he became sin for us. And at that moment, after only six hours on the cross, with his full faculties, not dulled by wine or myrrh, he has fulfilled his mission and so with a loud cry, Mark records, and John tells us what he cried, John 19, verse 30. It is finished! Jesus breathes his last. David Hewitt, another writer, comments, Victims of crucifixion could take many hours or even days to die with long periods of exhaustion and consciousness, but Jesus' death was different. He remained conscious and in control throughout the whole ordeal and he died with a cry of triumph on his lips. The kingdom of heaven is open to all believers. Now, here's the absolutely amazing thing. A Roman centurion is the first to walk through the curtain. Is the first to believe. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he cried, Surely this man was the Son of God. Tom Wright puts it very, very wonderfully in his, his little book on Mark, Mark for Everyone. Listen to what he says. And now at last, not the high priest, not a leading rabbi, not even a loyal Jew, or disciple, but a battle-hardened thug in Roman uniform, used to killing human beings the way one might kill flies, stands before this dying Jew and says something which in Mark's mind sends a signal to the whole world that the kingdom has come, that a new age has dawned, that God has done something, the news of which will spread around the globe. The Roman centurion becomes the first sane human being in Mark's gospel to call Jesus God's son and to mean it. Now if that doesn't give hope to everyone here, nothing else will. You may be a Gentile like I am, by birth. You may be a thug like the Roman centurion. You may not look it, but you may be. You may have done disgraceful things in your life and if we were to put them on the, DVD, on the screen behind us, you would run out in terror. But for you, Christ died. The kingdom is open. If a Roman centurion can get it, there's hope for you. Providing you recognize it. And he's the first of innumerable Gentiles. We sang about them in the opening song from Revelation. Drawn from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
who will enter that new and living way. That's why we're here this morning. That's why Charlotte Chapel exists. If Jesus had not died on the cross and the temple curtain had been torn, we would still be excluded from God's people. Kept outside. You wouldn't get in if this was the temple. There'd be people at the door. prepared. There were notices on the temple saying, if you're a Gentile, if you pass beyond this, you're dead. But now it's open. And notice, another hint in Mark's account. Here's some more encouragement if you're from the International Fellowship. A centurion is the first to believe and an African is the first to carry the cross. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, we're told that this man was from Cyrene. It's a city in North Africa. He's got a Hebrew name, Simon, which suggests he's probably a proselyte, a convert to, to Judaism. And he's probably, we're guessing here, he's probably up in Jerusalem for Passover. And he's making his way through the streets, imagine him, with the crowds jostling by. And they're all shouting something. You know, like you hear a crowd in the street, something's happening. And he maybe edges his way through the crowd to see what's happening. And a Roman soldier grabs him by the scruff of the neck and says, You there! Carry this cross. Jesus, exhausted from the scourging and suffering, has stumbled to the ground. He cannot carry his cross. And this man, Simon, is given the responsibility. I bet he wasn't very pleased about it. What a humiliating thing. The Romans had the right to press gang anybody they liked. And they chose this man from Africa, probably a black man. said, you carry the cross. However, notice how Mark describes him in his Gospel. He says, Simon, from man from Cyrene. You know, the father of Alexander and Rufus? You don't say that unless your readers know who Alexander and Rufus are. Mark was originally written to the to wrote to the church in Rome, almost certainly. And if you read in Paul's letters to the Romans, chapter sixteen and verse thirteen, Paul refers to a list of people and he says he speaks about a man called Rufus and his mother. One of the members of the church. We can almost be certain that Simon became a follower of Jesus through this experience. You see, our verse of the year reminds us that Jesus says to would-be disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Donald English comments in the Bible speaks today beautifully, he says, not exactly to the letter of that verse, but certainly in its spirit, Simon unwittingly became the first to carry a cross and to follow Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? an African, the first to carry the cross. And people think Christianity is a Western religion. Oh yes, eventually. And it took some time. Eventually the gospel came to our shores. It came to Ireland and to Scotland and to Wales and to England. And from there two centuries ago the good news went out to the ends of the earth with the rise and birth of the modern missionary movement. The book of Acts records the message of how it happened. Sadly, constantly, every city they came to, what happened? The Jews largely rejected Jesus. And the Gentiles embraced him and put their faith in him. 
That doesn't mean God's rejected his people, Israel. It just means, again, I don't have time to talk about it, read Romans 9 to 11, but it means that God has his plan and purpose and that we've been grafted into God's people, Israel, and then all Israel will be saved when the Jewish people finally turn to Christ. I believe in large numbers, and Christ will return. It's all part of God's wonderful plan. The gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. What a wonderful event. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we might never be forsaken by God. But reconciled to him, welcomed into his family. Almost finished. I began with a story. A true story, a tragic event on Mount Everest. Could Rob Hall have saved himself? Should he have saved himself and left his dying friend behind? Whatever the answer, the story ended in tragedy. For both he and his fellow climber died. Yet the death of Jesus is not a tragedy, but a triumph. Yes, at any moment he could have saved himself. He could have come down from the cross, yet he chose to remain there. He chose to die in order that we might live on the cross. Jesus did not save himself in order to save us. The only way it was possible, the sinless Son of God had to die as a sacrifice as the Lamb to reconcile us to God so that our sin might be forgiven and wiped out. Now as it were, we stand at the cross of Jesus all those years ago. And who do we identify with? Are we part of the mocking crowd? Or are we just part of the people? You see, we've got this kind of picture of the cross you know, that like it was a big event in town and everybody went out to see it. Listen, it was nothing like that. Take my word for it. The Romans nailed people, not, not in spectacular places. They nailed them by the side of crossroads. If Jesus had died in Israel today, he wouldn't be on Colton Hill. It would be at Toll Cross and you'd pass him by in the bus strung up there on the cross, if I can put it politely. And many people like that, they just drive past. They walk past, oh, I'm not going to reject Jesus, but well, what's it got to do with me? So where are you? The question is, have we rejected Jesus by apathy or vociferously? Or have we recognised Jesus? That he is the Son of God. That's the reason why Mark wrote his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. It's about the Gospel, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now he comes to the conclusion, and next week we'll see the glorious conclusion of the resurrection, God willing. That we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That we may come bow in worship and submit to him and trust in him as our Saviour from our sin. The slate can be wiped clean this morning. This bread and wine tells you that. The body and blood of Jesus makes it possible. So that you might be forgiven. Have you received him as your Saviour and Lord? Oh, maybe you've been coming to Charlotte Chapel for a long time. Maybe you've grown up in the Charlotte Chapel family and you know all this as well as I do. But you've never done anything about it. Now, we were praying in the vestry before the elders that maybe today will be a day of salvation for someone in this place. Who knows, God has been speaking to you and this morning is your moment. You see, you can't choose when you come to Christ. Let me just say it again. You cannot choose when you come to Christ. You come to Christ when he calls you. 
and if this morning he's calling you then all I can do is urge you to put your trust in him this morning and receive him as your Saviour and Lord and to give you a chance to do that so let's just pray together